Check that out. Seats. And uh, our ministry of the week this week is our Vacation Bible School uh, soccer camp that starts uh, tomorrow. Uh, and here to tell us about that is Mr. Carlos Cuellar. Let's welcome him. All right. Thank you, guys. I'm just going to take a minute just to share with you a few things about our soccer camp. We're really excited. This is the second year that we get to do this. Um, and it's really fitting because we're going right now through the topic of evangelism on Sunday mornings. And what a better way to evangelize than to get into the community and be salt and light for the Lord. And that's the privilege that we have. God saved us so that we can proclaim his excellencies who called us out of darkness into his light. Um, we get to do that by using football, by using soccer. Um, and we're going we're gonna to basically meet at a park for five days uh, this, this coming week, Monday through Friday. And for two and a half hours each evening, we're going to just get to receive uh, not only Cornerstone kids, but a lot of neighborhood um, unreached kids um, who don't know the Lord. And we're going to just get to teach them soccer skills as we impart the gospel to them and, um, and just really call them to, to, to put their faith in Jesus. Um, you, inside your bulletin, there's a little bit more information about that, where we're going to be meeting. Um, and you can be praying for us. We just appreciate your prayers throughout this week as we do that. Uh, if you're interested in volunteering and haven't signed up yet, you can do that. You can see me on the lawn after the service. Um, and I'd be happy to talk to you. We're going to have, for those of you who are volunteering and who are part of the, the ministry, uh, we're going to have a short meeting right after the second service. So I'd appreciate if you guys could be there. Uh, if you volunteer, you're going to get a very cool t-shirt like this. And some of, the, some of you, a chosen few of you, will get a very cool sweatband. So, anyway, so that's another reason to volunteer if you haven't already. But uh, just be praying for us. And uh, last year was just a tremendous time. God did above and beyond all that we could ask or think. And he brought us about 65 kids. And what we're doing uh, is we want to see a lot of those kids come into our WANA program. So you can be praying for that. Also pray that their parents who come out, we had several parents come out and stick around for the, the entire week. Pray that those parents would be interested in coming to our new Spanish fellowship that we're going to start this fall. So those are two exciting ways that we're reaching out and um, hopefully we'll make an impact uh, in those, around, those people around us. So thanks so much. Uh, so that uh, begins tomorrow night at 6, six o'clock, 6 to 8.30. And um, it, you'll be meeting at the park. So you'll be showing up at the park at 6. And if anyone needs to know how to get there, please talk to Carlos uh, uh, about, about that after the service. Okay? Well, uh, this morning we're going to uh, do the second installment of our three-week series on the subject of evangelism. And uh, God has called us uh, in Christ, who are believers in Him, to go into all the world uh, and evangelize every creature. That's literally what the text of Scripture uh, commands us to do, to evangelize uh, every creature, which means to make the good news of the gospel known 
to them. Last week, Mike um, Barry uh, preached on God's role in the salvation of souls. And that was a critical sermon for us to to hear, because if we're going to be effective evangelists for the Lord and know what our role is, we we need to make sure we know what God's role is so that we never confuse those two. We never assume upon ourselves what only God can and uh, should do. But what we're going to focus on today is what our responsibility is. God has chosen to include us in the the process of the salvation of Sinners, and today we want to focus on what our role uh, is. Um, <clears throat> I um, the reason we're focusing on this, guys, is because there's actually a lot of confusing voices that are out there. There's a lot of models of evangelism that we see exemplified uh, in people's practices, and then also there's a lot of literature out there that's teaching one method of evangelism and saying this is the better way to go than. Than some other method. There are many people today, churches and organizations that are preaching uh, or they're evangelizing the lost and the message they're evangelizing them with says nothing about sin um, in, in any way. I remember asking one lady who was a, Bibli- a counselor who worked at a church, do you ever tell lost people that they're sinners when you evangelize them? And she laughed and she said, you know, I never thought about that. I suppose I should, but I haven't. Um, So there are many people out there who are not letting people know the news that they are sinners and and even using the law to inform them of that. There are others that are preaching a gospel message that does not include the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus. And I shared with you guys uh, somewhat recently of a gospel tract that I received in the mail telling telling uh, me how to be saved And to be sure, I'm going to heaven when I die. And nothing in the entire track was said about what Christ did to accomplish my salvation on the cross. Uh, There are others who say, hey, when you evangelize, you know, begin with the love of God or share the four spiritual laws. And then there are others who say, no, don't do that. That's actually bad. And start with the law of God. And and I'm not at this point saying, you know, one method is better than than another. I'm just saying that there's a lot of times we hear competing voices and and sometimes we can be left a little befuddled over, well, what do I do when I evangelize uh, somebody and share Christ uh, with them? So what I want to do today is essentially give you seven pieces of counsel. This is not going to be exhaustive. If you want to learn in a detailed way how to evangelize, then take the evangelism class that starts the second Sunday of September Uh, And you can learn uh, in a more detailed fashion. This will not be exhaustive, but it will allow me the opportunity to hit on seven hot button issues that I know I'm passionate about. um, And the staff is that we think would be of help for you if we covered them uh, today. But let me begin by reading to you a quote from a book entitled How to Increase Your Church's Attendance. This was written by a pastor of a church of several thousand people in the Midwest uh, a number of years ago. And in the book, he's speaking to pastors and he's telling pastors how to how to conduct an evangelistic service and how to conduct an evangelistic invitation. And listen to one of the pieces of advice that he gives to pastors. He says, do not reveal the closing point in your sermon. Do not reveal The closing or the last point, many of us in our preaching will make such statements as now in conclusion or finally, may I say, 
or my last point is he goes on to say this. These statements are sometimes dangerous. The sinner now knows five minutes before you finish. Hence, he digs in and prepares himself for the invitation so that he does not respond. However, if your closing is abrupt and a lost person does not suspect that you are about finished, you have crept up on him and he will not have time to prepare himself for the invitation. Many people may be reached using this method. That's a totally serious piece of counsel from this pastor to other pastors like me. And so there's a lot of stuff that's out there, a lot of voices that are clamoring to be heard. And we want to make sure that above all of those voices that we are hearing from the word of God. And so we want to talk about evangelizing with power. All of us, I mean, we're called to evangelize and it's like, hey, if we're, if we're called to do it and we're going to do it, let's do it with power. Let's do it effectively. And the kind of pieces of counsel that I'm going to give you this morning, we have these kinds of statements attached to them. Uh, we have it spoken of, of the gospel coming to lost people in power, all men knowing uh, that uh, that we are Jesus disciples. If we do a certain thing, uh, we're going to see that when someone was preaching the gospel to the lost, that thousands of them were pierced to the heart as they listened to the gospel presentation. We're going to learn of of what we should do in order to see men drawn effectively to Jesus. We're going to learn in the book of Acts the early church that with great power, they were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And then Luke, the writer of Acts, explains exactly why there was such great power in their proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus. And all of these things are attached to the seven pieces of counsel that we're going to look at this morning, uh, that if you follow these pieces of counsel, then your evangelism will be exactly as powerful as God wants it to be, exactly as effective towards the salvation of sinners as God desires for it to be. All right. You ready? Here we go. Counsel number one, if you want to evangelize with power, if you want to be an effective evangelist, is infuse the gospel into your life and then give your life to people. Infuse the gospel into your life and then give your life to uh, people. You know what, guys, we need to get out of our minds the concept that evangelism is something you do on Monday from six o'clock to eight p.m. It's not something that you schedule into your day. Evangelism is life. It is to be the whole of your life. Everything in your life is to be geared towards the gospel, the experience of the gospel for yourselves uh, and the demonstration and proclamation of the gospel to other people. And if you want to be a powerful evangelist impacting the lost effectively, the, the number one thing you need to do is you need to experience the gospel in all of its fullness. You need to pump your life full of the gospel, your heart and your mind and your life and your home your behavior, your ethics and your theology infuse the gospel into your life and then give your life away to other people. You know, it's one thing to go to the lost and to be holding a New Testament or a tract and say, hey, can I show you something? See this right here? You need this. Let me give you this. Let me give you this. Let me give you this. And you over here, you're lost. Let me give you this. Let me give you this. And that's that's good. And that's a part of evangelism. 
But God calls us to do something even more difficult. And that is to download the gospel into our lives and then to deliver our gospel laden lives to people. That's a lifestyle of evangelism. You know, a number of years ago, I learned something about preaching. When I first started as a pastor of Cornerstone um, back in 1992, basically I, I had copious notes that I brought to the pulpit. I had like four, five, six pages of notes that were single space and typed out and they were color coded and everything. And I even had, you know, my points and, and then even transition statements. What can I say to transition from one point to the next? And I basically had my sermons about 80 percent manuscripted. And the way I essentially preached in those early years was I had my notes and I preached my notes. All right. My notes, the truths were here on paper and I stood up here and I delivered my notes. I delivered truth from my notes to the congregation around 1994 or 95. I don't remember exactly when it was. I know we were in Mark three. That's how I date things. Um, uh, we were in Mark chapter three and I got the feeling like something was amiss with that. And um, and I began to make this decision. I pretty much decided, you know what, from now on, I'm going to put all my notes on one page and uh, I will consult that as I preach. But during the week, I will take the truth of God's word. I will jam it as much as I can into my heart. And then when I get to the pulpit, I will give my heart to the people of Cornerstone. And I began doing that at that point. And it's very different than just dishing off notes that I have sitting on the pulpit, it's very different when I have my heart full of God's truth and then I just give my heart to those that I preach to. And that's essentially what we are commanded to do. This is the way we effectively evangelize. We jam the gospel, we infuse the gospel into our lives and then we begin to give our lives away. And by the way, you jam the gospel into your children. You infuse the gospel into their lives and then you give your children away. To the lost. If your child says, I want to go to India, I want to go to this Muslim country. And you're thinking, man, if they go there, they may end up being dead in two years. Your thought should be, you know what? I have infused the gospel into my child. And now I give my life. I give my child away to this gospel that I have poured into them. This is more difficult. You might say, well, I've never heard of that strategy for evangelism before. Where is it found in Scripture? Well, we find it in Thessalonians, first Thessalonians. Paul is reflecting back on his time with the Thessalonian believers. And by way of evangelism, when he was giving the gospel to them, he says to them in first Thessalonians one five for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know, what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Paul was saying we didn't just kind of stand, you know, on some platform and lob the gospel to you. No, we came and lived among you. We were among you. We were in relationship with you. And our gospel did not come to you in word only, but it came in power in the Holy Spirit and with full assurance as you saw the kind of men we were among you and for your sake. He elaborates on this in First Thessalonians 2.8. He says, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased. In other words, we didn't just do this, but we were thrilled to do this. We were happy to do this. We were ecstatic. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also 
our own lives. Paul is saying when we were among you, yes, we gave you the gospel and word, but we gave you our lives. And he goes on to say, you know, how they suffered. Paul ended up suffering when he was in Thessalonica. He got persecuted by the Jews. He ultimately ended up getting run out of town. He didn't want to be a financial burden to the Thessalonians. So he says we were working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you. And we basically poured out our lives to you like a father or a mother would for their children. And, and it was a great sacrifice. Paul gave away his time. He gave away his energy. He gave away his life. He did everything he could to meet their needs. He poured out his gospel infused life into the Thessalonians. Yes, we verbally preach the gospel uh, and we give the gospel to people in word, but we also take the gospel and put it in our lives and then give our lives to people to where it's life on life. J.I. Packer in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, says you are not usually justified in choosing the subject of conversation with another until you have already begun to give yourself to him in friendship and establish a relationship with him in which he feels that you respect him and are interested in him and are treating him as a human being and not just some kind of case. With some people, you may establish such a relationship in five minutes Whereas with others, it may take months. Evangelism is not just speaking gospel to people. It's letting the gospel fill your life. And then you begin to give yourself. You begin to give your life to people in love for them. And this often involves sacrifice. This is lifestyle evangelism in the best of ways. And I'm not saying here, just relate to people and hope that sometime over the next decade, they're going to say, hey, there's something different about you. What is that? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a lifestyle where you are declaring gospel truth verbally, but you're also giving your life away to the very people that you are seeking to reach. There's a second piece of counsel that I want to give to you guys. And that is be righteous, do good deeds and suffer well. You want to you want to have an impact upon the lost, then be righteous, do good deeds and suffer well. Nothing hinders the testimony of Christ any more than unrighteous living amongst professing Christians. Uh, they cause the enemies of Christ to blaspheme, turns the hearts of people away from even hearing the genuine truth that is being declared uh, but Peter says, if you want to have an impact upon the loss, be righteous, do what's right, abstain from what's wrong, do good deeds, live a life of doing good deeds. That's not just morally good deeds, but beneficial deeds of charity, meeting needs, material and, and even spiritual, whatever kind of needs you see to pour yourself into doing good things and beneficial things to those in your life that have needs and suffer well. Look what he says in First Peter 2.12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. It's presumed that you're going to be among the lost in relationship with them. And while you're among them, keep your behavior excellent. That's morally excellent. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers. These believers Peter's writing to were being persecuted. They were suffering. They were going through the fires of affliction and persecution. And part of the persecution was that some of them were being slandered as evildoers. They were being misjudged, mistreated and slandered by the very people that they were seeking to reach for Christ. He says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds 
as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. You know what a day of visitation refers to? In, in the Bible, a visitation from God uh, could either be a visitation of judgment or a visitation of mercy. And Jesus uses this expression uh, when he weeps over Jerusalem. He says, you did not recognize the time of your visitation. In other words, I visited you in mercy. You didn't recognize that. And now judgment's going to come your way big time. Um, and this passage, clearly, every commentator agrees that this is a visitation by God, a visitation of mercy. And what Peter is saying is if you amongst the lost keep your behavior excellent, you live a godly and holy life. And also you um, uh, when you're being mistreated, if you suffer well, if you don't retaliate, but you render a blessing when you are cursed and when people do evil to you, you forgive and you do kindness in return to them. And you're living a life of doing good deeds, even towards the very people that are misunderstanding and slandering you. And speaking against you, if you're living this way and responding to suffering in this way, then the lost people may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God on the day in which God visits them in mercy. Peter is saying the day may come when God shows up and the work of regeneration begins and God begins to work in their life and show them himself and their sin and show them the glories of Jesus. And on that day, you do not want your life to be an argument that comes into their mind against receiving Christ. You want to be the kind of person that they think about and it only spurs them to look more seriously at this to where on that day when God visits them in mercy, they're ready to respond. And your life has been an impetus used by God. To steer them in that direction. You know, how, like how many of us in this room want to be good evangelists? Raise your hand. Um, you know, we might pray, Lord, make me a good evangelist. And you know what the Lord may do with some of you? He may say, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to answer your prayer and create an opportunity for you to have a huge evangelistic impact upon a lost person. What I'm going to do is I'm going to bring suffering into your life. You're going to be mistreated and the person that you're wanting to reach, I'm going to allow them to even do wrong against you. I'm going to allow them to see wrong being done against you. I, I want them to see how you suffer as a Christian. Well, when we think about that, maybe we're not so excited about having an evangelistic impact. But you know what? I've heard testimonies of people that were influenced to Christ by watching a genuine believer Suffer, suffer with grief and pain and tears, but suffer with hope in their hearts and trust in God. And so be righteous, do good deeds. And when suffering comes your way, when things don't go your way in life, when you're misunderstood and mistreated, respond well to that. And God can use that to cause unbelievers watching you to glorify God in the day of visitation there's a third piece of counsel if you want to be able to evangelize the lost with power, and that is love your fellow Christians. You say, Milton, I thought we were talking about evangelism today. We are. Don't underestimate the impact that we can have on the lost as we relate to one another and love one another. Jesus teaches us this in John 13:34. He says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for each other. 
the world will look on and say, wow, you must be a true, genuine disciple of Jesus. All of you, because I see the way that you are loving one another in John 17. Jesus is praying to the father and he says, father, I do not ask on behalf of these disciples alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. In other words, that all of these believers, the disciples and then all believers that are that believe in me through their testimony. And that includes us, regardless of their their history of any hostilities between each other and any prior wrongs that are done against one another, regardless of their economic differences and social differences and ethnic differences, that they would all be unified and that those who claim my name would be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. See, Jesus here, 2,000 years ago, is contemplating in advance what it is that He intends to communicate to the world the truth about Him that proves to be persuasive to the world that He is truly the Messiah, the Savior sent by God. And Jesus envisions our unity with one another, the way that we love one another, to be what God uses to affirm the credibility of the truth about Jesus. I was rereading uh, just a little story about a guy, Jim Peterson, wrote a book entitled Evangelism as a Lifestyle. And in that book, he tells about a friend of his named Mario. Jim Peterson was a missionary down in Brazil. There was a day where a guy named Mario and his fiance stopped by Jim Peterson's house Jim invited him in for a bowl of soup and Jim was there with his wife and his children and the whole family sat around the table and they enjoyed a bowl of soup with Mario and his fiance and didn't get into heavy gospel preaching at that point, but established a relationship with uh, with Mario that led to over the next four years, Jim Peterson met with Mario once a week and they studied the Bible together. Eventually, Mario ended up accepting Christ as his Lord and Savior, and he experienced salvation. Shortly thereafter, Mario was talking to Jim Peterson, and he said, Hey, Jim, do you know what it was that God used more than anything else to awaken me to my need for Christ? And Jim said, No, I don't know what it is. But he says in the book, I suspected that it was our intellectual discussions around the Scripture that were just so compelling to him that he was persuaded He expected that kind of reply, but Mario said, well, I'll tell you what it was. Listen to what Mario said to Jim Peterson. Remember that first time I stopped by your house? We were on our way someplace together and I had a bowl of soup with you and your family. As I sat there observing you, your wife, your children, and how you related to each other, I asked myself, When will I have a relationship like this with my fiance? When I realized that the answer was never, I concluded I had to become a Christian for the sake of my own survival. I know some of you parents are thinking, oh, my goodness, if I had someone come over to my home and watch the way we relate to one another, I don't. All right. So we're not there yet. All right. But. But again, this just highlights how important it is, even when you don't have people into your home, 
brothers and sisters and parents towards children, children towards parents, husbands and wives. We need to be relating to one another as if Jesus actually died so that we can now love one another as if the cross has made some kind of difference in our lives so that when the lost do come into our home, we're not faking it just to be a good testimony. But instead, we're relating to one another and loving one another the way that we have been doing, even when no one else was in the home. But in the life of Mario, it was observing the way a Christian family members were relating to one another. There's huge power in this, guys. In fact, in the book of Acts, Chapter four, it says, and with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and abundant grace was upon them all. And as you're reading that, you're like, Luke, I'm curious, why? Why were they preaching the resurrection with such great power? Why was so much grace upon the congregation in an evident way? Luke says, I thought you would ask that. Let me tell you why. Verse 34, for there was not a needy person among them, speaking of the church, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and they would be distributed to each as any had need. What was one of the reasons that the gospel was going forth and with power? It's because of the way the church members loved one another even to the point of selling stuff in order that they can have the money to address needs in the lives of their brothers and sisters. So let us love one another. Let us love one another and be excited, actually, about the evangelistic impact of our loving relationships with each other. You say, all right, Milton, all right, that's all good. You know, infuse the gospel into our lives and, you know, love uh, one another and, uh, and do that kind of thing. And OK, we get that. But I really would like some help. And, you know, what do I say to a person, a lost person when I'm they're right in front of my face? I've got 10 minutes to speak to them um, or maybe more time than that or maybe less. But what do I do? How do I share the gospel with uh, with that person? Uh, what is the process? Well, again, if you guys want more training on this, take the evangelism class and you're going to learn this over a period of weeks. But let me give you a fourth piece of counsel that now the rest of this begins to deal with your direct interaction with the lost person as you're verbally declaring the gospel to them. I want to highly commend to you guys what is indeed a biblical practice, and that is that when you share the gospel with the lost, begin with God. Begin with God. Don't start off by saying, do you feel empty inside? Do you have a hole that you're thinking needs to be filled? Do you feel lonely? Do you need a friend? Uh, don't make that person the starting point. Um, and I would encourage you not even to make their sin the starting point. Make God the starting point as you begin to unfold the gospel uh, to them. This is actually, I would encourage you guys, do a study through the book of Acts and look at all the occasions where there's any evangelizing happening. And we have record of what the evangelizing person is saying. And the consistent pattern you find is that they always seem to begin with God. It's just amazing in its consistency. On the day of Pentecost, 
Peter, Acts 2.22, says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene. And then he begins to speak about Jesus for about 13 verses and talking about what he did when he was here. And Old Testament scripture that affirms the truth that he is the Messiah, his death and also his resurrection, that he was approved of God and so forth. Peter preached Jesus. He began his presentation to them by speaking to them of God, the Son Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 10, Peter is speaking to the Gentile, Cornelius, and his household. And look how he begins. Acts 10, verse 34. And opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God... See, he begins with God, that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You see, he's beginning with God. He's beginning with Jesus Christ. He's declaring the lordship of Jesus. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, how he went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed, for God was with him. You notice nothing's been said of sin yet. He gets to that. He gets to that. But he begins with God portraying God. In Acts 17, Paul is on Mars Hill and he finds an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. He uses that as the starting point for his message to those that were there. He says in Acts 17, 23, for while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you this God, I proclaim to you. Now, these are pagans. They know nothing about God. They don't know like the Jews know that God is the creator and sustainer of all of life. And so Paul begins with creation truth about God, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth. He gives to all life and breath and all things in him. We live and move and exist. Now, eventually, Paul gets to sin. But he begins by giving basic truth about God. He gets to sin in verse 30 when he says, God, this God I've been telling you about, who is your creator and sustainer, the one who gives you every good gift you enjoy in life. God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. Again, the consistent pattern throughout the book of Acts is that when someone is evangelizing, they begin with God. You think of even Paul on the Damascus Road. Uh, No human evangelized him, but uh, Jesus did, right? And he had an encounter with the glorified Christ where he saw his glory that left him blind for a handful of days. That gospel presentation to Paul began with the revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes people say, well, and and. And I think we we understand what they're saying by this. They say, well, when you're when you're evangelizing someone, you should always begin with the law. And my response to that would be, well, what do you mean by the law? Um, Do you mean the book of the law? If that's what you mean, then I would say, yeah, I totally agree with that. Begin with the book of the law. What's the book of the law? It's the first five books of the Old Testament. And then how does the book of the law begin? 
Do you open it up to Genesis 1-1 and it says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not steal. No, you open up the book of the law and it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and goes on to speak of all that God has created, indicating this world belongs to him. And all the sustenance we draw from this earth is because of the creative handiwork of God. And we learn in Genesis that we have sinned against God. This God has a right to give us instructions, but we have sinned against Him. And you read all this about God, and it's not until Exodus chapter 20 that God begins to speak the Ten Commandments. So, I would encourage you then... As you evangelize, go ahead, begin with the book of the law, which begins with God. You say, well, when I evangelize, I what I mean by law is the Ten Commandments. I think we should begin with the Ten Commandments, to which I would reply. That's really great. Have you read the Ten Commandments lately? I mean, have you opened up your Bible and read Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5 lately? Have you read the Ten Commandments lately? Because the Ten Commandments begin with a proclamation. The proclamation that the Ten Commandments begin with is, I am the Lord, your God. God is speaking. He doesn't start off saying, have no other gods before me. Don't lie, don't steal. He begins by saying, before he gives a single command, I am the Lord, your God. Look at me. This is who I am. I am Jehovah. I am the self-existent one. No one brought me into existence. And I am also your God, which implies I am your creator. And so being your God, I am your authority. I have a right to tell you what to do. And not only am I your God and the self-existent one, but look what I've done for you. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, have no other gods before me. And on the list begins. I love the tablets on the screen behind me because these tablets on this image do something that a lot of people fail to do when they produce a facsimile of the Ten Commandments. They normally a lot of times begin with the first commandment. But this on this tablet, it begins with I am the Lord, your God. And I love that. So when you speak to the lost, if you want to begin with the Ten Commandments, that's great. But do what the Ten Commandments do. Start with God. And you know what? God is speaking to Israel saying, I brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery to a pagan Gentile who may know nothing about God. You might have to basically portray God to them and and then begin to speak to them that God is the one who created you. God is the one who sustains your life. He gives you every breath that you breathe, every heartbeat. All good things in your life are gifts from him. You see, guys, it's not until this is why we begin with God. It's not until people see God in his immensity and in his glory that they can then even begin to comprehend the magnitude of their sin. Almost everyone that I have ever witnessed to, I think there's been. Just a couple times that I recall that I have witnessed to someone and they refuse to acknowledge ever sinning in their life. It was over in Israel uh, last year in October, November, and we were witnessing to a guy over there who said that he has never committed any sin in his life. And those kind of people are, are kind of rare. Ninety-five 
percent of all the people you're ever going to talk to will admit, yes, I've lied. Yes, I've stolen. Yes, I've committed adultery in my heart. Um, Almost everyone knows intuitively that they have failed to even live up to their own standard. And almost anyone you ever talk to, they they themselves will have a bad feeling about that. It's like, yeah, I know I haven't been what I should be. And yeah, I feel kind of bad about that. And sometimes when we're witnessing to people, that's all we're looking for. And it's like, okay, so you're ready to pray and to believe when somebody who is being quickened by God and regenerated by God, they don't just see that they've sinned, but they see their sins as being against God. We'll see this further. J.I. Packer in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, says the gospel is a message about God. It's not just a message about rules being broken. It's a message about God. It tells us who he is, what his character is, what his standards are and what he requires of us, his creatures. The gospel starts by teaching us that we as creatures are absolutely dependent on God and that he as creator has an absolute claim on us. Only when we have learned this can we see what sin is. And so I commend to you, begin with God, make it your ambition that, you know what, God, by your grace and through your enabling, I want to speak to this lost person and please, through my words, show them your greatness, show them your glory. In fact, when I preach the gospel to myself every day, I always begin with God. My God is immense beyond imagination. He measured the entire universe with merely the span of his hand. He has also been unbelievably good and merciful to me as the creator and the sustainer of my life. Every breath, every heartbeat, every function of every organ is a gift from God. Every legitimate pleasure I experience is a gift from his loving hand to me. There's no greater object, object of admiration, wonder and delight in all of the universe. You know why I begin that way? Because when I begin with the greatness of God, that's when I begin to understand the greatness of my sin. And when I understand the greatness of my sin, I then begin to understand the greatness of the grace that God has shown to me. Look at how Peter does this in Acts 2. I love this. The very first evangelistic sermon in the history of the church. Again, I told you, he says, you know, of Jesus of Nazareth, he begins to preach Jesus to them. Takes like 13 or so verses to present Jesus and how he is the Messiah, how he died, how he was raised, approved of God. And here's Old Testament scriptures that affirm who he is. And he's just presenting to them the glory and the grandeur of Jesus. And then he sums it up by saying, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. And I want you to be there in this moment, guys. Peter is climaxing his declaration of the glory of Jesus as the Messiah, the chosen one, the risen one of God. And I'm sure the listeners were like caught up in that, like, whoa, he's awesome. And then there's a pause. And Peter says, this Jesus whom you crucified. Oh. Oh. We crucified this one who is so great and glorious. And those words come out of Peter's mouth. This Jesus whom you crucified and their immediate responses. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter told them. But they would not have understood. They knew they crucified Christ, didn't they? 
I mean, before the day of Pentecost, they all knew they crucified Christ. Those that were involved in that. Did they feel guilty about it? No. But when Peter stood in front of them and in the power of the Holy Spirit portrayed the glory of Jesus and preached Jesus to them as he really is. Now, this this fact they already knew that we crucified him. Now they don't feel so good about that. In fact, they're pierced to the heart. But I don't think they would have been quite so pierced to the heart if Peter didn't begin with God. Begin his gospel presentation by proclaiming the glory of Jesus to them. You think of Isaiah in Isaiah 6. You know, uh, he sees the Lord at the beginning of that chapter high and lifted up. We know from John's gospel that what Isaiah saw was the glory of Jesus himself. How does Isaiah respond upon seeing God as he is? He says, woe is me, for I am ruined. I'm an unclean man and I need atonement. And he received that atonement as the story continues. But it was his vision of God that showed him the magnitude of his sin. Isaiah, before he saw the Lord, did he know he was a sinner? Yeah, we know Isaiah. He was a prophet. He, he knew that he was a sinner. But something about seeing God in his glory awakened an awareness of the magnitude of his sin beyond what Isaiah had ever experienced before. And that's why, guys, when you are bringing the gospel to the lost, begin with God. Declare his glory and his greatness. Then and only then can people see the greatness of their sin. Fifth piece of counsel that leads us right into this is when you do share the gospel, do make sure that you speak of sin. And when you do speak of it as being against God, um, don't just try to show someone that they're a sinner. Don't just try to convince them that they've lied. Um, and get them to acknowledge that you do want them to acknowledge that, but you ultimately want them to see that the lies they tell the disobedience that they've had to the Ten Commandments are ultimately acts of offense against God. All right. For a person to say, yes, I'm a liar. I'm a thief. Uh, that indicates some progress. But again, most people will acknowledge that fact. What you want someone to do is to acknowledge and understand that those sins are against this incredibly glorious God that I have been speaking to them. But do speak of sin. And again, there are many people out there that don't speak of sin as they share the gospel with the lost. In fact, listen to what one pastor here in Southern California said in a book a couple decades ago. And this is his advice to you regarding evangelism. He says, unsaved souls will need a great deal of positive affirmation before they will be able to listen and hear and begin to comprehend the truth of saving grace. No wonder Jesus Christ employed a strategy of evangelism where he never called a person a sinner. Uh, if the Pharisees read that, they'd go, well, he kind of did. Uh, he called us graves and full of dead men's bones and hypocrites. And the woman at the well would say, yeah, he, he did point out my sin of immorality. So this is not even a true statement. But he goes on to say they were sinners, of course, but he never told them they were. Now, listen to this. In this guy's opinion, the proclamation of the truth of their sin would only have driven the nail of unworthiness deeper until the promises of forgiveness would lack the power to loosen and extract the spike of sin, self-condemnation and guilt. 
So don't, I mean, people are fragile. Don't tell them they're sinners because that'll beat them down so much that they'll say, I'm not even worthy of the gospel, so I'm not even going to believe. It's too bad that the apostles didn't get this kind of counsel because uh, they blew it big time. But amazingly, it was effective. Uh, in Acts 2, Peter is saying, you disown the holy and righteous one and put to death the prince of life. This man you nailed to a cross and put him to death. You crucified him. I mean, he's coming at them with their sins in this matter. And did they walk away so beaten down that they could never believe the gospel? No, their response is they're pierced to the heart. They're like, what shall we do? Peter says, you know, he tells them what to do. And they do that. And that day, 3000 souls are added to the church. So, you know what, guys, just go with the biblical model uh, rather than some of the models that we have uh, out there today. God will save those whom he has chosen to save as we faithfully preach the gospel. And again, don't just speak of sin. Don't just get a person to acknowledge that they've sinned. You need to labor to show them that they've sinned against God. That's the purpose of the law. We use the law in our evangelism not to show people that they've sinned. We use the law to show them that they've sinned against God. That's the point of the use of the law. In fact, Paul does this in Romans 2. He says in Romans 2.21, You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? Well, yes. You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you not commit adultery? In your heart, basically, he's saying, and the listener says, well, yes. Now, listen to this, because this is where Paul's heading. You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you not dishonor God that he's leading them to that awareness? And so we want the lost person not just to say, yes, I've sinned, but for them to see that every one of their sins are against God, who is infinitely holy and infinitely righteous, who is their creator and who owns them and has the right to tell them how to live. And therefore, their sin is not just sin. Their sin is as infinitely bad as God is infinitely good. Preach God. And then when you preach sin, show them through the law that their sin is against this God. That is what makes sin. Sin. Romans 3.23 in Paul's summary statement, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's his point. So we use the law, use the Ten Commandments to, to show people their sin. And you know what? Sometimes when we use the law, our motive is only I'm going to use the law to show them that they really need Christ. There's nothing wrong with that. You know why Paul used the law in the book of Romans? He used the law to show people their sin so that they would thereby know that they're qualified for salvation. Read the logic of Romans 3:23 and the verses preceding that. Paul's point is to show that everyone is sinners, including you, and that makes you qualified for the salvation that Jesus came to give. Jesus came to save sinners. So I'm going to take the time to show you that you're in that category. So it's actually good news that you're realizing you're a sinner because now you know that you're in the category of those that are qualified to be justified by faith in him. Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came for sinners. So we show them out of love their sin 
so that they know that they're in the camp of the qualified ones for the Savior who came only for sinners. Use the law with this intent. There is a sixth piece of counsel that I would give you. And that is, yes, you preach God and yes, you speak of sin and show them that their sin is against God. But when you evangelize, speak much of the Savior and of his cross. You don't want to get so caught up in speaking about their sin and their violations of the law that that's kind of where your primary passion is. And and it's you kind of overlook really emphasizing Jesus. Here's the deal, guys. Anyone who's watching you evangelize and they're taking notes, they ought to be able to say when you're done, man, that person preaches Jesus. Man, that person proclaims Christ. That person is passionate about Jesus. Yes, he used the law, but he is passionate about Jesus. That is Paul's description of his own ministry. He says, we proclaim him. That's what we're all about. We're all about proclaiming Jesus as we proclaim Jesus, uh, the revelation of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, his death and his resurrection from the dead. God uses that to show people their sin, their need of him. In first Corinthians two, verse two, Paul says to the. Corinthians, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. When I was with you guys five years ago, that's all I wanted to talk about was Jesus and him crucified. I went to the cross. I went to Jesus. You guys came to me and said, hey, what do you think of this guru who's just coming through Corinth? And here's the new philosophy he's advocating. What do you think, Paul? Paul's like, I don't know. All I know is Jesus and him crucified. That's all I want to talk about. Paul says, I was content to come across to you like that was the only thing I knew was Jesus and him crucified to the Corinthians in chapter 15. He says, now I make known to you the gospel. And he goes on to explain what the gospel is. And the very first thing is that Christ died for our sins. There are people today that are preaching Christ apart from the cross. That's exceedingly dangerous. And you know what? You could do that. You can go through the gospels and pull certain things about Jesus, his love for the poor and and whatever. You can pull certain things about Jesus and preach that. And you can get almost anyone on the planet to follow him. But you take the cross of Christ and you stick that in front of people's face. You'll divide any audience that you're speaking to. There will be some who say that is the God for me. I want that God. That is the God for me who died for me and showed me his love and giving up his life for me. Some will come by faith to Jesus through the cross and experience the power of God. But others in the room will say that is stupid. That is moronic foolishness. I want nothing to do with that. And others will be morally outraged. It will be a scandal to them that God would slaughter his son so that we might be saved. And there's a lot of literature out there where people are utterly offended by the teaching of the Bible of the vicarious atonement through the death of Christ, and they have all kinds of criticisms against it. And you know what? There are some people in the church that have grown ashamed of the cross. But you know what, guys? Don't just preach Jesus. You preach the crucified Messiah. You publicly portray him as crucified, as Paul says he did to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 3. He is the crucified one. Yes, he is raised, but when we preach the gospel, we speak much of Jesus and of his crucifixion. The reason it's not popular to do so is because the cross shows us the magnitude of our sin. John Stott, in his book on the cross of Christ, says nothing reveals the gravity of sin like the cross. 
The cross does not flatter us. It is impossible for us to face Christ's cross with integrity and not feel ashamed of ourselves. For if there was no way by which God could righteously forgive our unrighteousness except that he should bear it himself in Christ, it must be serious indeed. The cross not only shows people the love or the gravity of their sins, but the cross also shows people the relentless, ruthless love of God for them. God was willing to go to any lengths in order to save us. And guys, may we never lose the amazement over that. That I mean, I, I know myself. I know the life that I've lived and the offenses that I've committed against God by breaking His law and that God would take His perfect Son and slay Him on the cross for me. What, what amazing love is this? And that Jesus was willing to lay His life down and be crushed upon a cross For my salvation, greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life like this for me. Through the cross, God shows us the gravity of our sins. He also shows us the greatness of his love. There's a seventh piece of counsel. My last point is, guys, in conclusion, (laughs) is At the end of the day, when you're sharing the gospel, call upon people to repent and believe. Repent means to change their mind about God, change their mind about themselves, change their mind about anything else they've been putting their trust in up to that point. Change their mind about their sin and turn to God away from their sin and to believe, to deposit the sum total of all of their trust in Jesus and in him alone. Ultimately, you call upon people to do this. The gospel is not just. a a group of facts. You know, sometimes we use the word share, like I was able to share the gospel. And I'm not going to criticize that. That's cool. But sometimes we can be so, um, I guess, wimpy when we share the gospel that we're like, well, I just want to share some things with you. And this is who Jesus is. And this is what he's done. And I I just want to leave those those facts with you for you to contemplate and um And there's something missing in that. All right. What I just said is okay, but it's not complete. There's something missing, something missing in that. The gospel at its core is a confrontation. The gospel embodies a command from God. In fact, uh, the evangelist in the New Testament, they they deliver commands. Acts 2, 38, repent, Peter says. In Acts 16, 31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's an imperative. In 1 John 3, 23, John says this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. To the lost, God says, believe in my son. That's a command. Are you going to obey or disobey? To us as believers, every single day we get up in the morning and God gives us a command. Believe in my son today. And ultimately, we're not just sharing facts, but we are making an appeal. Second Corinthians 520. We are ambassadors for Christ, Paul says, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg of you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Ultimately, the gospel leads to a command that we communicate from God through us to the lost. And the question they're left with is, will they obey or disobey that command? We often think of the gospel as something to believe in, but we often don't think of the gospel as something to obey. But what's interesting is in Second Thessalonians 1.8, Paul speaks of those who do not obey the gospel. 
In 1 Peter 4.17, Peter speaks of those who do not obey the gospel, meaning the gospel is something to obey, apparently, which means the gospel ultimately delivers a command. Will a person obey or disobey? So you share the gospel with someone and ultimately you end up making an appeal to them to believe and you communicate to them that not only is this who God is and what he's done, you know, through Christ on the cross, raising him from the dead. But God now commands you to believe in his son. And you have a choice to make. Will you obey that command to believe or disobey? Now, if a lost person says, well, I appreciate you sharing that with me, but. I'm not going to do that. I don't think I need to do that. I I think I'm good enough to get into heaven. What what they're doing is what they've done throughout their lives with all of the other commandments of God. Um, God gives them a command and they disregard it in favor of their own wisdom. God now gives them a command in the gospel and they disregard it because they say, well, I disagree with God. I don't need that and I'm not going to obey that command. That's why only those whom God is regenerated, only those whom God quickens and opens their heart, only those people are able to hear the command of the gospel to believe in Jesus and say, I will bend my will and I will believe in obedience to God's command. I will be obedient to the gospel. Um, We're pretty much out of time. Let me just say one thing. Um, You ever been sharing the gospel with someone and you get all the way to this point and you're like, so so would you like to um, ask Christ to save you right now? And they're like, yeah. And then you panicked. Like, okay, and this happened to me a number of years ago. A guy I was working with, I'd been sharing the gospel with him for like four months. And and finally, you know, he was broken one day and he says, I'm ready and. And I like panicked and I started trying to think of, okay, so now are you sure? And I I started going through the checklist and he's like, yeah, and everything checked out. And I said, all right, so, all right, uh, I want you to pray. And he's like, okay. And, and, but before he prayed, I said, hang on. Now, when you pray, make sure you thank God for sending his son to die. And he's like, okay, I'll do that. And I was like, well, and, and, and you also, you need to mention the resurrection because God raised him from the dead. Okay, I'll do that. And, and I kept stopping this guy from praying because I wanted to make sure, you know, everything's got to be included in the prayer. It's not going to work or something. And, but I find great, I found great comfort over the years in, um, the story Jesus tells of the tax collector who came into the temple and was so broken over his sin that he couldn't even look up into heaven and all he could get out was God be merciful to me, the sinner, period. And Jesus says that man went home righteous. Amen. So the point is, is God doing a work in someone's life? Is he opening their heart? And if he is and they respond in faith, it's the faith that saves them. But the Bible does call upon the lost who call upon the name of the Lord and to be saved uh, thereby. And so ultimately, we want to call upon the lost to do exactly that. Well, uh, let me ask you to bow your heads. We're going to have Jay Wetker from the Master's College come out next week to um, preach the final installment of this series. So we have more that we're going to seek to learn about evangelizing the lost. 
But I guess my biggest challenge today is that that we all need to. Here, here's what I want your priority to be, to say, I want to live a gospel infused life. I, w- I want to just every day be just jamming the gospel into my heart, just cramming it into my life and and memorizing scripture and and searching out truth, listening to sermons, reading books and whatever, meditating and and uh, reading God's word. I, w- I want to take as much gospel truth as I can get my hands on. I want to be greedy for it. I want my whole life to be infused with it. I want my relationships with my my spouse and and my children, my brothers and sisters to be infused with the gospel And then I want to start giving my life away, my gospel-infused life. I want to just start giving it away. I will give of my time and my energy. I will give of the love that is in me that God has put there. I will pour out my life as a drink offering Jesus, to accomplish our salvation, didn't just come and drop it off. No, it came through Him giving up everything. He gave up everything. He poured out His life. How can we think then that our call to evangelism is to do anything less than to let the gospel just fill our lives and then to just start giving our lives away? Dear God, help us to do this, that the gospel would bleed out of every pore of our body. If someone were to prick us, it would be gospel that would come out. And that we would be willing, even to the point of sacrificially, to just give our lives to people. Our time and our resources to show them gospel love through our deeds and then to speak gospel truth to them through our lips. Lord, help us as we practice these things and follow these pieces of counsel. To be able to evangelize with power and effectiveness. What we've seen today is our job, our role. We leave the rest to you. Help us to glorify you, Lord, in the way that we evangelize. We ask these things in Christ's name. And all God's people said, Amen.